turn to the Gospel of Luke. And rather than going to the end of the book, let's start at the beginning of it. We're not going to start over with the whole series. It wouldn't hurt probably, but we're not going to do that. But we do want to read this morning. Uh, we have read two weeks ago the text from John regarding the theology of Christ's coming. We read from the Gospel of Matthew last week regarding the prophecy of Christ's coming as He fulfilled all spoken in that regard. And this morning we want to read uh, the majority of chapter 2 uh, regarding the purpose of His coming. As that will be declared um, in His presentation at the temple. Luke chapter 2, I'll be reading out the New King James Version. Please follow along as I read. God's Word says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in the swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them. They were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this, Christ, this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds rejoiced or returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were complete, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. 
And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign which will be spoken against, yes, a sword will pierce your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, and she was of great age. And had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. We uh, have been studying through our Christmas series, if you will, based upon the end of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus Christ, taking some of his disciples aside, described for them from the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms concerning Himself and all that had to be fulfilled in His coming. We looked at the Law of Moses two weeks ago and considered really uh, from both the examples of some types, that is, um, from typological people, um, from the instructions of the Law, even from the prophecies given at sin, the theological necessity of a Redeemer, of a substitutionary sacrifice for men's sin, that sin has brought death, and that only God can bring life. And therefore, He placed it upon Himself because it is not God's desire that men perish in their sin, to provide a means for men to escape what we deserve. And from Genesis, throughout the books of Moses, we studied that principle and that theology that God would provide for Himself a Redeemer. We learned last week as we looked into the prophets the extensiveness of God's plan that every facet of Christ's coming was explained from when it would happen, where it would happen, to whom it would happen, and the events around its coming, His coming. All foretold 
sometimes hundreds of years prior to its event. But we're also told much more than just his coming and the events around that, and certainly there was extensive prophecy regarding that, but we also saw that purpose of his coming. It wasn't just to have this miraculous birth occur to call men to be better people, but to truly bring peace on earth. That Christ's coming was pointed. That is, it had a singular purpose. And that was that he would come to die. And the prophets declared that as well, that he would suffer. This Holy One of Israel, this Son of God, would come and suffer cruelly at the hands of men, would die a death that he did not deserve, that he might take our place. But that death, and therefore sin, would have no victory. Rather, he would conquer it on our behalf. We found all of this declared in prophetic utterances of men from Old Testament times. Reaching back into some of the earliest prophets and all the way, of course, to some of the final prophets of Israel, stretching itself across several hundred years between them, all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we've looked at the Law of Moses and we looked at the prophets, and today it has come upon us to look at the Psalms. And so last week you spent a lot of time going through a lot of books of the Bible as we went from Joshua all the way through into Zechariah Malachi, the end of the Old Testament. Today we're going to spend nearly all of our time in one singular book, and that is the book of Psalms. And so I invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 2. We are not going to go through the Psalms, though, in order. Um, we're not going to go from 2 through 150, from 1 through 150 in the order of the prophetic utterances there, but rather we're going to look at them in the order in which Christ would have lived them, or their statements here. And we're going to find, even as we found the Law of Moses, focusing more on the theological necessity of a Savior, that there need to be someone to take the place. There need to be a blood sacrifice to cover sin. And that the blood of bulls and goats of any animal is not sufficient to that. And so God says it was going to be my son. Born of a woman, without aid of a man. We find the theology there, and we found, find the practical necessities described in the prophets, giving us things that we humans all like to be able to touch and handle and know, and think that somehow by them we have sure knowledge. And God provides that. And so we don't have a blind faith or unreasonable faith, but rather we have one that God says specifically, here are the tangible things that you people look for. You need to know this. And so you know where it's going to happen in Bethlehem after the others. Two Bethlehems, he tells us which one. We know when it's going to happen by Daniel. We know exactly who it's going to happen to. The virgin shall conceive and bear a child. Uh, we know what his name is going to be ahead of time. We know what um, uh, the circumstances are of the events of the time period, we know it all before it ever happened. So much so that when the Magi come and say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? The scholars of Israel were able to say, oh, well, you have to go down to Bethlehem for that. And the great question is, why weren't they in Bethlehem for that? 
It wasn't that they didn't know. And it's not today that men don't know about Jesus. It's that they choose to reject that knowledge as some truth that has an impact upon them. And the Psalms takes us to that next step. To not only have the theological background of why it is necessary for us to have a Savior, and not only to know the particulars of His coming and His life and His death, burial, and resurrection, but the Psalms takes us uh, very strongly into the necessity for us to personalize that message. To say, this coming Savior is for me. And that He has come to meet my needs. And I must receive Him. We are going to see that it's going to declare um, much more about His death, burial, and resurrection. But we will find over and over again here in the Psalms, the, the psalmists, and they're not just David, but it's Solomon and many other men uh, that wrote these, um, declare that you're my deliverer. You are my refuge. You are my strength. Um, you are the one in whom I trust. I trust in the Lord. And this will be the theme as we go throughout the Psalms. And while we may not always read the verses that include that, um, because we're going to narrow our study down to particular verses, if you read the context of these verses in each of the chapters, and I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, fifteen chapters that we're going to look at out of 150. So I've narrowed it down to just 10% of the Psalms. We're not even going to look at all of them, but we're going to look at specific verses within them. But if you read these chapters in their entirety, you will find within them statements of personal commitment. I will praise the Lord. I will offer to Him my thanksgiving. I will trust in Him. I will confess my sin to Him. And the Psalms are all about internalizing this truth that God's Word declares. And David and those that came after him in some Psalms, go back to Moses again, talk about the internalizing of the truth of God and putting it to work in our very lives that when I encounter enemies, I trust in the Lord. When I encounter my own sin that's in my own hearts, I trust in the Lord and I confess it before Him that when I encounter the difficulties of life, I trust in the Lord. That when I deal with the hard questions of life, I look to God. And He doesn't fail me. And so, when we come to the Psalms, we are going to certainly find information about Christ, about this coming one. We're going to find theology about Him. But wrapped up all in there, and we're going to see His purpose is going to be uh, noted. And, and we're going to find that out as we go. But wrapped up in there is the need to personalize this. It's not enough just to know this information. It's not enough just to understand the purpose or the reason behind all of this work of God through this person, Jesus Christ. But it is necessary to make it your own. And no one else can do that for you. No religious ritual can do that for you. You must choose to do that by faith, trusting in this one that is declared in God's Word. And I don't want to miss that, so I want to start with my conclusion this morning. Because in the time I have, I'm not going to probably get through all this, and I want to make sure that we understand the force of what the Psalms are about. You must make Him your Savior. Not just the Savior and that Savior, not of Israel, but of all men. Even as the angels declared that He has come for all men. Well, that includes you, but it requires something of you. It requires that you choose to receive that truth. 
Don't be like the scholars of Israel sitting in Jerusalem, knowing the information and never making it down to Bethlehem to worship the king. Don't be of that ilk. Don't be of that kind, of that, of that nature. But rather, with this information, be like those three magi, or however many magi there were. There were three gifts, so they were magi. Don't be, be like them. Don't be like the scholars of Israel. Be like the scholars of the Chaldeans or of the eastern parts where they came, who came and made that trek down and gave all that they had before the person Jesus Christ and worshipped him. Recognize that it requires something of you. And so here we go into the Psalms. What do they declare of this one Christ? Begin in Psalm chapter 2. And you're already there, aren't you? So I gave that to you first. Psalm 20, chapter 2, right away we are confronted very early on the Psalms with this necessity of the Son of God to come to be the solution to the problem of men's sin and all that it invokes upon us and around us. And so, beginning verse 6, we find that God, who so far in the Psalms has ridiculed the efforts of men to rule themselves and, and the sinfulness of the rulers of men who think that they can thwart the plan of God and are actually working against the anointed one of God, God comes and he says in verse 6, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. We have this early declaration that God will send His Son. There is nothing that the nations can do to stop it from happening. And some tried. And we know that, don't we? Herod tried to stop it. Just like Pharaoh of old tried to stop the deliverer of Israel from being born, so Herod says, there's a king born? He's going to supplant me? Well, I'll stop that from happening. He sends word down there. He says, listen, um, I hear these magi have seen this star for about two years, so let's kill every boy down there in Bethlehem region two years old and younger. Did the nations rage against the plan of God? Yes. Did the kings try to stop it? Yes. What does God say? This is my son. I have begotten him, and there is no work of men that can stop it now. Praise the Lord. That once God says, I have set the time, the place, the people, I have set the circumstances, and I know that the world will try to stop it, I know that there will be adversaries against it, but I have declared it. And when God declares it, it is complete. It cannot be thwarted. And that's important to us because if God declares Christ's coming and it happened, regardless of the men who tried to oppose it, then God has declared that he brings salvation to all who will trust in him. If God declares it, it is so. And there's nothing anyone can do to thwart it. 
is the one who will be the possessor of all the nations one day. That day is coming. He will come. You'll notice this careful balance between God's loving purposes in the sending of the Messiah, of sending a deliverer, and His wrath. And some would emphasize one half and say God is love and, and therefore nobody has to worry about anything. Um, and they're ignorant of the Scriptures because here, right where God says, I'm going to send my son to die for you, we are sandwiched between two statements of his wrath. That because men were under God's wrath, it became necessary that God solve our problem. If you reject his provision, guess what's at the other end of this story? God's wrath. And so we have this careful balance. Yes, God loves us and didn't want any of us to experience his wrath. So he sent his son. But if you reject his offer, what is left for you but wrath? And when God comes as wrath, we see the frightening aspects of it. He does not come gently in his second coming as he came in his first, but rather with a rod of iron to break in pieces. Turn with me to Psalm 89. Chapter 89. And if I don't tell you it's in the Psalms, it's because they're all in the Psalms. So I might just give you chapter and verse and you'll know it's Psalm. Psalm 89. Beginning in verse 24, we have yet again God's declaration. Um, and again, it, it comes right on the heels of God talking about, listen, I am going to destroy the wicked. Be sure of it. I am going to destroy the wicked. And then he interrupts this with verse 24 in Psalm 89. He says, But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, referring to this Messiah, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. That is his authority. Verse 25, And I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever. My covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. A very powerful statement about Christ's coming that he comes as the king of kings. He comes as the high king on all the earth. And now we have this term used about the seed. And this has a double meaning in this psalm. This seed, certainly referring to the seed of David, and David becomes a, another character, a person, that foreshadows Jesus. Because Jesus is going to be of the line and lineage of David, of the seed of David. And so out of the seed of David comes this one who is the anointed one of God. We find his lineage. We can clearly identify it. But yet it has a double meaning because Jesus himself will have a seed. And that's exciting to me. I don't know if it's exciting to you because we know, contrary to what Da Vinci Code says, that Jesus didn't have any children. So what, who are these seed of the anointed one? Who is the seed of the king of kings, the high king of the heavens? Who is the seed of his that will endure forever and ever? Well, we are described also in the New Testament as the seed of Abraham, that God can raise the seed of Abraham right out of the earth. And he has, in fact, done this. That seed of this anointed one are all those who trust in him. You trust in Jesus Christ, you are counted of his line and lineage. You are of the family of God and the promises of God to his son, to his firstborn, 
are offered to all who will trust in him. You trust in my son, I will make you my son. I will make you of his seed. And my covenant, my agreement with you, I will establish forever and ever. Isn't that incredible? You see, Jesus Christ certainly is the high king of heaven and, and certainly is the son of God and has all that blessing, all that favor of God. But God says, you trust in him, you share in all that favor. You share in all that inheritance that I set aside for my son and it is through mercy that the covenant is established for us through Jesus Christ and his throne. And we have an eternal covenant. That is, that it is not going to be rescinded. It is not going to be reneged. It is eternal and sure. Go on with me to Psalm 132. A few pages over. The Psalms get start getting a little shorter down in here. These are the chorus Psalms. Psalm 132. I want to just pick out, I really would like to read large portions of this, but um, let's be in verse 10. And then we're going to jump down towards the end of the chapter. It says, For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. That word the anointed or the anointed one is that word Messiah. You're our deliverer, our redeemer. Don't turn your, him away from us. The psalmist says, listen, we are in great need of this one, this deliverer. We desperately need him. Oh, Lord, make sure that you keep your promises about the coming one, this great anointed one who's going to come to Jerusalem. And verse 13 will... And again, well, let's, i got to read this. Verse 11, The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. You see it? We have the Son of God who God says, I will set him on his throne. That is Jesus. You want to join him? You want to be on a throne too? You're going to have to trust in Jesus Christ. You join with him on the throne I put him on, and I will surely do it. Now, we live on the other side of this. He has surely already done it. And now he says, I offer it to you as well. Keep going. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her with provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation. Isn't that great? The priests need to be saved. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I'll make the horn of David, that is Jesus Christ, grow. I'll prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I'll clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. We have this promise of this anointed one who will come. He will come to Jerusalem and there he will grow, it describes. That whole idea, he will come in there and there he will come to his own. He will come into his kingdom there in Jerusalem into his fullness of his ministry, we find, what is his purpose? What was the purpose of Christ's coming? Not only to set up his own kingdom, but to bring salvation. To bless those who will humble themselves before them. And every reference to it throughout this psalm, many of the psalms, talks about God's desire to care for the poor, the weak, those who will humble themselves. All statements of, Lowliness. If we'll lower ourselves, 
bend our knee, bow our head before the great God of all the universe, then He will respond and care for us. Then salvation comes. Turn back with me to Psalm 24. These are well into the Psalms of David, the early Psalms. Psalm 24, we're going to read, we need to read the whole chapter. This is one of the Messianic Psalms, very powerful Psalm. But David talks about who is this Lord that's coming to earth? Who is he? The earth is the Lord's, it says, in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Listen carefully. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who will seek your face, Selah. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and lift you and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And let there be no mistake, that one child born in a hay trough is the king of glory. And his arrival in Jerusalem, his entry there, and this is the statement here, hey, the gates of Jerusalem, lift up your heads. Don't bow down. Don't, don't be ashamed. Lift up your heads because the king of glory is about to walk in and through your very gates. And this we saw in the prophets last week where the prophet said, hey, don't you be ashamed of this inferior temple. It's not inferior because in this temple, my son will walk in. The anointed one will enter and he will teach and the people will be gathered there in that place. Oh, it's not as magnificent a structure maybe as what Solomon built, but in the rebuilding of it, recognize this is the temple that the king of glory is going to walk into. Psalm 69 describes what Christ did when he walked into that temple so many years ago. Psalm 69, beginning in verse 7. It says, Because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face, I have become a stranger to my brother's and an alien to my mother's children, because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. The psalmist again takes this up about himself, but he's obviously pointing to this one Christ, and this is one of the psalms that are quoted in the Gospels that his desire for the house of the Lord consumed him. That he goes in and he sees heinous things being done in the house of the Lord and he says, I cannot tolerate this. And when Christ comes in, 
one of the first acts that he does is to purge the temple of the money changers, of those who would seek simply to give lip service to the religiousness to gain profit, to get a little money out of it. We don't have that happening today, though, at all, do we? Boy, I want to preach a whole message right there, but I'm going to move on. So we find zeal for the temple, zeal for God's house, has eaten him up, has consumed him. And for this, his own people hated him. You're getting between us and our financial prophets. Who do you think you are? Well, he's the king of glory. And he has come to his house to his holy mount. Who is this one has been asked in Psalm 24, who is this king of glory? And he is the Lord, strong and mighty, we are told, mighty in battle, but he's also the Lord, the deliverer. In Psalm 110, we have him described for us um, not only as king, but now as a second character, as a second position that he holds in Psalm 110. We find him declared to us as a priest. Not only a king, but a priest. In Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is one of the passages that Christ himself used to stump his enemies. Remember it? So who is David talking to? The Lord said to my Lord. And here David is saying that my, a child of my lineage will be my Lord. This is referring to Christ, whom David himself declares this one who is younger than me, who will be out of my lineage, will be my Lord. It says, The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. And again, do you hear it? God has faithfully promised this. Will you accept it? What does God promise? What is it that God will not go back on His word on? You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of His wrath. He shall judge the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink by the brook of the wayside. Therefore, He shall lift up the head. And so we go from a this one who is the Lord of all the earth, who comes as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which we'll talk about in a, here very soon. But I want you to again note the context Christ comes, yes, as our priest, and a priest is there to intervene between you and God. Man, God, the priest is the go-between. And now we have a go-between who is not from an order of Levi. Levi was the priestly house. And God says, this is going to be a priest of a whole different nature. And he goes back into the Old Testament to Genesis. It's going to be like Melchizedek. Uh, man of peace, uh, uh, the king of Salem, who is also priest that Abraham gave his tithes to. And he says, that one who has no beginning and no end. And, and 
just out of the blue, there he is, is the one that you must trust in. But note, please, you fail to trust in him. What comes next? God's wrath. Not that God desires it for you because he's made a way of escape. And he calls you to it. Get over here. I provide a way to avoid it. But we turn a deaf ear to it. What do you expect to happen then? When we turn a deaf ear to God's word, to God's plan, to God's provision, wrath, that's what comes next. I'll wait till I get there. It is in this role of high priest forever, the final one in which we trust in Christ, that he came. Yes, he came to be king, but he came also to be the priest and the sacrifice. That is that once he has completed his job, there is no longer a need for a go-between between man and God because Jesus Christ has fulfilled it forever. And that's why you don't call me priest. You call me pastor, which means shepherd boy. That's what the word means. Um, in some groups you might call it elder or bishop. Um, over, bishop just means overseer, manager. You're the owner's lackey to manage his stuff. Um, and so we might use those terms, but all of them are subordinate terms. That we are in the service of the priest, Jesus Christ. He is our high priest forever. He is the go-between between God and man. And then God says, I'm going to make you all priests. What does that mean? It means that just as Christ or God says, listen, I'm going to give my son his inheritance and you can participate in that inheritance by trusting in him. So now I'm going to make him a priest according to a different order than Levi based upon a better sacrifice, Hebrews tells us, based upon a, a better promise. And if you trust in him, you won't need to have someone between you and God. You'll have that same access as Christ. That we can go directly and confess our sin to God without having to go to a priest. Without having to go to offer sacrifices. This is the offer Jesus Christ gives. That He is that priest forever and now there is no need for men to intervene between God and man. These weak men that need to be saved themselves. No, God says, now man can come directly to me through Jesus Christ. You trust in my son. You have direct access to me. And that's why we call upon you to read God's word and pray. Um, If this is the only place you're doing those things, you're in error. That needs to be an active part of every day of your life is to be in that capacity of priest where you have this kind of access. How foolish you are to ignore that to waste it, that kind of access to God through His Spirit. Well, Christ entered Jerusalem as king, yes, but He also entered it as priest. And after purifying the temple, we find that He invoked the anger of His own people against Him, as Psalms prophesied. In Psalm 34, we get very specific. And we have just a series of these. We're going to look at just a few verses of specific things that Christ 
would experience. In those hours of his passion, of his death. Psalm 34, verse 20. We find God says he guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And we know that Christ on the cross, although it was the Roman custom to break the legs of everyone crucified, to hasten the death after it was determined that they had suffered long enough, or because to please the Jews to get the, to get the people to die on those crosses quicker uh, before nightfall was to break the legs. And God says, no, don't, you're not going to break the bones of my son. And they're guarded. The psalmist says, you guard my bones that none of them are broken. Psalm 69. We have this further declaration. Verse 19. You know my reproach, my shame, my dishonor. My adversaries are all before me. Reproach has broken my heart. And I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. This is the psalmist statement. Psalm of David. David's description, poetic description of what it's like to have all these enemies against you. And yet we find him prophetically declaring the very events that happened on the cross to Christ. But there he is, abandoned by his own. The Romans were his enemies. The Jews were his enemies. He was alone. And all that was offered him was gall and vinegar to drink. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm again, and we should read all of it, really. I want to begin verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime. You do not hear in the night season. I am not silent. Obviously, we recognize this declaration as one of Christ on the cross. That as he hung there in the cross in darkness, as God turned his face away from him, and in the middle of the day, darkness comes as at night. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the indication is very clearly because at that moment, he became sin. Your sin, angel. He became your sin. And this is what he cried. Now, some might say, well, that's not prophecy fulfilled because Jesus Christ was just quoting Scripture. But the conditions are all accordance with the rest of the chapter. 
For here in the daytime, it became night. Not a lunar, not a solar eclipse, nothing like that. But truly God hiding his face from his own son as he became your sin. Verse 6 says, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. And all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. He trusts in the Lord. To let him rescue him. Let him deliver him. And since he delights in him. And we recognize again the statements made by the enemies of Christ. Let him call out to God and let him take him off the cross. He claimed to be had the power of God. Let him cry out to God now and let God deliver him. Let's see if Elijah's going to come down and take him off. Verse 9, But you are he who took me out of the womb, who made me trust while I, on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. And let me share with you, there is only one person. who fulfills this instruction, this declaration, and it is Jesus Christ. But we're not done. Chapter 31. We have yet another statement of Christ from the cross. Let's begin verse 3. It says, For you are my rock and my fortress, therefore for your name's sake lead me and guide me Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. And we recognize that as another statement of Christ on the cross. As he gave, surrendered his life for us. Into your hand I commit my spirit. But that wasn't the end. (laughs) Oh no, Psalm 16. That was not the end of the story. We have, many times we communicate that. The beginning of the story is Christmas. The end of the story is his death on the cross. But that is not the end of the story of Jesus Christ. And if it were the end, then we're wasting our time here today. God can't do anything for you. You're all under wrath. If the end of the story is Christ dying on the cross, you're without hope. You're lost in your sin. You deserve death and its punishment. And that will be your end is the wrath of God. But that was not the end. Chapter 16. Let's jump down. To verse 9. It says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. You have a hope for your flesh, your body. You have a bodily hope. What is that hope? Verse 10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And God says, I will not let my son see corruption. I will not let the anointed one, the Holy One, the Messiah, though you slay him, yet he will live. He will conquer sin and death forever. He will not be left in hell or in Hades, in Sheol He will not be corrupted. That is, he will not decay in the grave like other men. But he will rise. And again, 
the psalmist tells us that in this we have hope in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. In Psalm 118, verse 22. reads that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We all often know verse 24. We don't always know the context of it. The context of it is the day that the stone rejected of men became the chief cornerstone in God's plan. The capstone, the finishing touch. This is that one born in a manger, as the psalmist declares, as the prophets declare, as the books of Moses declare, this seed of a woman, born in the manger of the line of David, who would die on Calvary's cross and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death forever. This one rejected by men, God accepted and said, with this one, salvation comes to all who will trust in him. He'll become the chief, according to the capstone, if you will. Which leads us to our final psalm this morning, Psalm 72. And we will read all of Psalm 72. We'll stop occasionally, but we'll see the King Messiah Priest in this high psalm of David, Psalm 72. Give the King your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the King's Son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries. The poor also and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He'll redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live. The gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. <laughs> I like that. And blessed be His glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The end of all things is in the hand of our Savior. You see, even the resurrection wasn't the end of the story. 
For the end of the story hasn't come yet. The story of Christ endures until there's no moon and no sun. And if we walk out this morning, it is almost not morning in five seconds, you will find the sun is still in the sky. The story of Christ has not ended yet. And the psalmist here declares that his kingdom that will reign over all nations will come and his glory will fill the earth and the earth will be as it has never been before when the Messiah comes as the reigning king. He is king. Yet his reign is on high and a day will come where he will be on the earth. And when that day comes, we recognize from this psalm exactly who it is that will benefit from it and who it is that will be terrified of it. Those who will humble themselves and seek his face, God says, I'll care for them. And he describes them as the poor, the needy, those who desire their souls to be saved. God says, I will redeem their life. Those who are pressed. And he says, how precious in his eyes are the blood of his saints, of his holy ones. And yet there's obvious that there's going to be a great many who are going to be, and rightly so, full of fear at his coming. No, the story of Christ isn't ended. It didn't really begin at Bethlehem. It began much earlier than that, as we've seen in God's Word. He is the Son from everlasting to everlasting. But his story isn't ended, and it will not have an end. For the story of Christ is eternal. And God invites us to place our faith in this working. David did that. He placed his faith in God. And he confessed, I trust in the Lord. Hundreds of years before Christ comes, he trusted in the Lord that a deliverer would come and fulfill all that was recorded of the prophets, all from the Psalms, all from the, law, from the writings of Moses. And David places trust in them again and again and again and again. David's statement is, I'll trust in the Lord. He will redeem me. And it's him I trust. We have the easier faith. Because we can look back and know Jesus has come. There's no mistaking that a week from the day, the world, not just our country, but the world, will celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? For these 2,000 years, does this celebration continue? Why? For He is whom He said He was. He was the fulfillment of all God's Word, and therefore it endures, even as He Himself endures. And if that much is so true, that it is impressed upon the world the need to recognize His birth, even to the point that we call this the year of our Lord, and that is what it means. I know we use the common era before common era and common era. Um, that's because they want to deny Christ. But this is the year of our Lord, 2011. Why? Who is this Lord? Who is this King of Glory? It is Jesus Christ. 
And we declare it every time we say it's what year it is. We declare it every time we celebrate this season and, and recognize Christmas. We declare that he is who God said he would be. And if that's the case, then he can do what God said he came to do. And that is to redeem us, all who trust in him. Who is this king of glory? My prayer for you is that he is your savior. For if he is not, if he is not your savior, he will be your judge. The choice is yours.